Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So today I thought I would do is I'd revisit a topic that I've touched on, I think kind of fragmented sort of across a bunch of different Dharma talks over the last year and a half. And I wanted to bring some of these perspectives together just as a reminder of, um, well, a reminder to ask ourselves, what do we think the Buddha discovered? What is it that we think the Buddha discovered? What is Vipassana? And uh, an even bigger question, why is it so challenging? I find it challenging. Um, Why is it challenging sometimes to distinguish the two, mindfulness meditation and insight meditation? So I wanted to give us some background here uh, on this. And uh, over the next few weeks, we'll flesh it out in some significant detail. I think it's important to just remind ourselves uh, a little bit about the Buddha's journey. I always think it's fun to start there. Of course, uh, this teaching, these teachings were handed down orally uh, for so long, and things were not written down until hundreds of years uh, after the Buddha was gone. Yet we have a fairly coherent map um, of this process we call insight meditation. So I wanted to just talk about the story a little bit um, because I think it can be helpful for our own truth. I think it can be helpful for our own practice. I know it's been helpful for mine. One of the things I like to remind myself of is that the Buddha's quest for enlightenment was very much a honest, inauthentic soul searching. It really was a human being asking is there such thing as long-term happiness and well-being outside of the ever-changing phenomena of our daily lives? Is it possible to feel content inside the heart, inside the mind, while everything else continues to arise and pass away in a type of controlled chaos, if you will, sometimes not so controlled? And when you look at the Buddha's journey, you see that there was really an authentic questioning of whether or not it was possible to have what we might call an authentic contentment, a lasting contentment. And when you look at the Buddha's journey, you can see clearly in the teachings that the Buddha really had a specific type of happiness that he was asking about. The happiness that the Buddha was asking about was a happiness that was unconditioned. He wanted to know that if he could remain stable in heart and in mind, could remain compassionate and joyful, even in the face of duress, even in the face of stress and discontent. And that was really a big question for him. And the other question that he had is, is it possible to find that kind of stable happiness, an unconditioned happiness that was blameless or harmless, harmless to himself and harmless to others? It's a great aspiration. And I'm always like inspired by the fact that he would have included that in the quest not just a feeling of pleasure or a feeling of ease, but he wanted to know that the happiness that he was getting wasn't harming anybody. So being good, bringing goodness into the world is an inherent part of the Dharma journey. Unconditioned, blameless, 
and lasting happiness. This is essentially what the Buddha was asking. If you look closely at the teachings, <clears throat> you can see clearly that the Buddha was not looking for an absolute truth. He was not looking for unconditional love. He was not looking to find a god or to become a god. Uh, he was not looking for a not-self experience. He was not looking uh, to follow in the footsteps of the non-dual traditions of his day or traditions that were seeking uh, oneness experiences or cosmic consciousness. You could see very clearly that the, the question on the tip of his tongue or the tip of his heart, so to speak, was about contentment, an unconditional, blameless, lasting inner peace. That was what he was seeking. And at the time of the Buddha, there were all kinds of other spiritual traditions alive and well that had been going on for some a thousand years prior to the Buddha that were focused on other things that asked different questions and created different paths, some of which the Buddha practiced in his own, in his own journey. And the reason I want to mention that, and I know I've mentioned this before in you know, various talks, the reason I want to mention that is I always feel very inspired and think it's important that we remind ourselves that we are walking in the Buddha's footsteps. We are taking the same path, but it's our heart and mind that has to walk. And so when we look at what the Buddha did, the Buddha was filled with curiosity. He was filled with hope and inspiration and courage and persistence and an incredible amount of patience. Because his early journey, so the story goes, lasted years, like seven or eight years. So this is a person who was really committed to authenticity, really committed to awakening, and he didn't know if he was going to find it. So there wasn't a sense of certainty in his heart and mind. There was a sense of hope and curiosity, but he simply didn't know whether or not he was going to find what he was looking for. Now, we have the benefit of 3,000 years of people saying, oh, we've walked this path, and yes, you can get there, and here are the tools, and here are the Dharma talks, and here are the teachings. He did not have that. So I just wanted to remind us that, in part, we do go on the journey that the Buddha went on. We have to awaken in our own hearts and minds. We have to walk it. But we have a little bit extra advantage that we have teachings that have been handed down. And the Buddha did declare that he found something, that he discovered something. And I think that's important. It has been for me in my own practice to recall that um, when I walk the path myself. When the Buddha came to the end of his journey, before he decided to experiment with his Anapanasati practice under the tree, as they say, he had been studying with several renowned gurus of the day. And at least one of them proclaimed that the Buddha was enlightened before he experienced enlightenment uh, from his own description. A teacher had told the Buddha that he was enlightened and he finished his training and could now teach. And the Buddha's response to this was that he didn't feel enlightened. He didn't feel that the happiness that he was experiencing was unconditional. He felt that beneath that experience, there was still dukkha. There was still suffering, stress, and discontent. And so he declined to join the tradition and he went on and eventually created his own path, his own practice, um, and had what then he called his actual enlightenment. Now, again, the reason I'm highlighting this fact is that the Buddha, like us, explore a variety of different teachings. He's had, he had a bunch of different teachers. He, he experimented with a bunch of different tools. We also do that 
in our practice. Part of Vipassana is the journey to explore the tools, explore the teachings, and find out what lands in our heart, right? What speaks to our mind? What works for us in this moment or that moment? And the Buddha did the same thing. He was looking for an authentic happiness and he didn't stop till he got there. And we're invited to do the same thing. We just have to keep practicing. We have to be patient. We have to be persistent and consistent, right? Continuity of practice. And in that sense, we are living the same journey that the Buddha took initially. We are explorers and experimenters of the heart and the mind. The difference, as I said, is that the Buddha said he found it and then left instructions, which is helpful. But you know, if someone leaves you instructions to get to the top of a mountain, you're still going to have to climb the mountain and it's still going to be a journey. So I want to I want to just make another comment here about this journey that the Buddha completed. On his deathbed, students asked the Buddha, are there other paths to enlightenment other than the one that you have walked and the one that you teach? And the Buddha said something interesting. He said, yes, of course, there are other paths to enlightenment. His caveat was, there are other paths and they do reach enlightenment. The enlightenment he experienced as long as they cultivate in some way the seven factors of awakening, as long as they cultivate mindfulness, concentration, investigation, skillful effort, equanimity, and happiness, or tranquility and joy, if you will, our PT and sukha, our tranquility and joy. As long as the path strategically cultivates those heart-mind qualities, yes, you will reach the liberation that I have reached. The other thing that's said is that even though there are other paths not described by the Buddha to enlightenment, according to the Buddha, not all the paths he experimented got to the enlightenment that he considered to be the one he was seeking. And for us, sometimes that's hard to hear because it comes up as fundamentalist or judgmental or divisive. Um, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I wanted to say it anyway, because in the teachings, I think it's really important to remember that there were tons of spiritual traditions at the time of the Buddha and the few or many that he practiced trying to find the enlightenment he was seeking did not work for him. He created a particular path. And the reason I say that is not to invoke some kind of essentialism or elitism, but to say that Vipassana as the Buddha taught it, was a very remarkable discovery, something very different than what was being taught at the time. And I feel like unless we can at least honor that fact, we tend to look at Vipassana just like another mystical teaching on the block. We look at insight meditation as no different than all the other versions of mindfulness meditation out there. And we lose some of the power and complexity and elegance of the Buddha's discovery. And I'll talk about the challenge of talking about this as we go uh, into the Dharma talk. But I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to mention that on his deathbed, he's, he says, of course, there are other paths. But what he experienced was very specific. And the way he got there was also very specific to the journey that he walked. The challenge with talking about the Buddha's insight, this insight through Vipassana, 
has to do to some degree. Um, it's really part, part, part of it is that we bring so much baggage to our practice. <laughs> I bring a lot of baggage. I'll, I'll use I statements. I bring a lot of baggage to my practice. Um, part of the reason it's difficult to look at Vipassana as being unique is that we have a lot of things that we bring to our spiritual experience. We have a lot of bias and a lot of presumption, and we all do, and the Buddha would have brought his bias and presumption to his practices as well. The Buddha explains openly that Vipassana practice, if practiced correctly, will go against the stream of your culture. It will help you to redefine what you find valuable. It will redefine what happiness is for you. It will redefine what a satisfying relationship or a loving community is for you. It's going to go against the stream of your value systems and what you find sacred. So it's going to be challenging by definition. It's going to, as I think Joseph Goldstein said, it sort of overturns your value system. It sort of takes a topsy-turvy, um, sort of spins you around in the washing machine, so to speak, in a good way, <laughs> purifying the mind, of course. And it's totally natural for us to push back against Vipassana. It's totally natural for us to um, look at the Buddha's teachings and long for or crave and practice only the parts that we like. It's totally natural for us to push away parts of the path that we don't understand or we initially disagree with or things that just are averse to our natural orientation to the world. The invitation to Vipassana is to look at the parts of the practice that challenge us and to use those as growth edges to really push ourselves past our limits to see what the Buddha was actually talking about, to really experience the wisdom in our own heart and mind. Now that's gonna be challenging. And one of the unique things about Vipassana is that it really is a challenging practice. It is quite uh, comprehensive. It has some real complexity to it as you get mature in practice. It takes a lot of work, right? A lot of heart, a lot of determination. And I know, as well as you all do, that meditation in general is challenging. But Vipassana itself, using the four foundations of mindfulness, looking at the jhanas, looking at uh, our loving kindness practices, Vipassana includes quite a bit of work, quite a bit of tools, and a significant amount of self-exploration. And we really do have to ultimately be willing to step up and to be courageous and to be curious and to be interested to really get the full effect of Vipassana as a way of living. It's just a challenging practice at its core. It really is going against the stream of what we usually consider uh, what's valuable and meaningful in our lives. So I wanted to speak to some of the, the bias and some of the hangups that we have with Vipassana practice. And I speak from experience with all of these, but this is just a short list. This is my short list of um, some of the common bias we bring to Vipassana. And like I said before, we'll unpack this over the next few weeks and go into detail into all of this. I'll just give you an overview. Coming to the Dharma, most of us are coming, at least in this group and in Portland uh, at PIMC in particular, are coming from backgrounds of a Judeo-Christian framework. Many of us grew up in some version of that kind of household, 
Uh, some of us have experience with Christianity and Catholicism. Uh, and we come to the Dharma oftentimes because we didn't have such good spiritual upbringings. We are leaving or trying to find refuge from a spiritual upbringing that was very dogmatic, that felt uh, like an imposition, like people were imposing beliefs on us. Oftentimes we come to the Dharma with a subtle, if not overt, antagonism towards religion. Many people come to the Dharma because we say that Buddhism really isn't a religion, it's a spirituality. And many of us, like myself, find have found a lot of refuge in that fact about Buddhism, is that so much of it doesn't require faith or belief, though it is in there, um, and the more mature in practice, the more you see it. But even though you're not being asked to believe anything per se, many of us take refuge in that. We take refuge in this idea that we can practice something spiritual that makes us feel loved and loving, uh, that makes, makes us feel safe and secure. And the communities that we find ourselves in are so supportive, right? Are so kind and generous and so welcoming. And many of us have come from spiritual backgrounds that were not so welcoming and not so loving. They were probably, for a lot of us, very judgmental. I grew up in an interesting household. My dad was Catholic and my mom was Jewish. And my dad is Lebanese. So that was interesting. Uh, there was a lot of religious and ethnic infighting in my family. So I come from kind of this tumultuous spiritual uh, background uh, from my home life. And I found great refuge in the peace and contentment of the Dharma out of that. So many of us come with that. And with that in mind, some parts of the Dharma, if they feel too dogmatic or they feel too much um, like they're asking us to have faith or to have beliefs or, they, or it feels too religious, it will trigger that fear of religiosity and we might not give it the time of day. It might look like or act like something we're familiar with in our Judeo-Christian upbringing or just in our life in general and we'll do this sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. So we have to be careful with that bias. We want to acknowledge that we've come to the Dharma for something particular, but we also have to understand that sometimes there's going to be parts of the Dharma that don't make sense, are confusing, seem awkward or odd. And my invitation to you would be what I, I wish someone would have said earlier to me is give it the time of day. Take a look at it. If it doesn't work for you, fine, put it on hold, but keep coming back to the parts that challenge you. The uniqueness of Vipassana, again, is in part the challenge. So take up that challenge when you see it, while honoring, of course, what works for you. Another bias we bring is that in Western spirituality that's not a Judeo-Christian framework, there tends to be an anti-intellectual orientation to spiritual practice. What I mean by that is that oftentimes, particularly in North American alternative spiritualities, thinking about things philosophizing about things is seen as antithetical to spiritual bliss or spiritual peace. That we come to the Dharma so much so because it allows us to feel, right? The four foundations of mindfulness start with the body. We get in touch with our body and our mood and our feelings and our breathing. And oftentimes we come with this bias though, that we're not supposed to do any thinking in our practice. That we're supposed to leave, that thinking is dualistic and thinking is what we're trying to stop. So we go to war with the mind. So we come to the practice oftentimes with this view that thinking is not spiritual. 
and that we're here not to think, that we're just here to feel. And this bias can get us into trouble because if we're going to explore our spirituality authentically, we're going to have to do some intellectual reasoning. We're going to have to do some critical reasoning, and we're going to have to understand at least the basic philosophy of Vipassana and some of the basic theory around it. Because Vipassana has such an elegance to it, and it has a complexity that requires what the Buddha called discernment, some investigation, some intellectual investigation. And it is built into the spiritual practice of the Dharma that there is some critical reasoning to the practice. Some of us, because we come into contact with that and we, we're not interested in that, we don't want to have it, or we think it's antithetical, we lose some of the power of Vipassana out the gate because we want to experience the meditation, but we don't want to understand the theory because we don't want to think about it too much. Now, I understand I think way too much, <laughs> so I get this. I'm one of those people that thinks way too much, uh, which is why I love the Dharma, because it allows me to shut that part of my brain off uh, at regular intervals. But I've also come to see that there is an intellectual side to Vipassana, and if we don't embrace that side of it, then we lose some of the power and efficacy of the practice. So embracing the thinking part of the mind as part of meditation allows us to really understand what Vipassana is in the long term. Another thing we do inadvertently. <laughs> human beings love to do this. So human beings love things in bite-sized pieces, right? I, I was thinking about this today. We love to reduce things into bite sizes, right? And so what came to mind was small bags of chips, bite-sized Snickers, and no, I'm not an affiliate marketer for Snickers, bite-sized candies, you know, sliders, like human beings love to reduce things into small pieces. And we love to reduce, right? We love to be reductive. We like to take a complex phenomenon and say, in the end, this complex phenomenon is just blank. And we like to reduce complexity down to a simple statement or a simple phrase or a simple practice. And in general, there's nothing wrong with that. I love taking complex things and reducing them down into clearer understandings and summaries and so on. The problem with reductionism, here's the problem with Vipassana, is that, as I said earlier, Vipassana entails the cultivation of seven different heart-mind qualities. Not just one, not just three, but seven different qualities. And if we, in our quest to get it bite-sized, we try to reduce Vipassana down to any one of those one qualities, we immediately lose the profundity of the practice. And oftentimes when we come to, to the Dharma and we come to Vipassana, we take one or two of the qualities that we really like and we just practice or cultivate those and we ignore all the rest. And in doing that, our practice gets very lopsided and the profundity and the intersectionality or interdependence of these heart-mind qualities gets lost and we lose a depth of practice. And like I said, it's totally natural for us to want to do this, but we love to take the Dharma and you're familiar with this. And, and again, I, I'm, it's totally normative. It's totally normative. I do the same thing. Um, I try not to in my Dharma talks, but on occasion I catch myself like reducing the Dharma down to something, but you'll hear this all the time. In the end, the Dharma is just about letting go. In the end, 
the Dharma is just about love. In the end, the Dharma is just about community. And as teachers, when we're teaching stuff, it's, it's easy to get lost in trying to reduce Vipassana or something like that in our teaching down to a little catchphrase that's bite-sized. Because in the moment, it might be the perspective we're coming from. The challenge with that, though, is when we try to reduce the Dharma down to a single heart-mind quality, we lose the discovery. We lose the discovery. And one of the things that the Buddha talks about in the Pali Canon is that at the time of his enlightenment, there were lots and lots of spiritual practices that only focused on one of the heart-mind qualities of Vipassana. And the difference in the Buddha's discovery is that you had to, according to him, put them together, put them back together. Now, you can practice them individually. One day I can focus on being loving, and the next day I can focus on curiosity, and another day I can focus on joy, I can focus on, who knows, skillful effort or equanimity. You can practice all the heart-mind qualities independently to strengthen them. But you must know how to put them all together into a single practice. So one of the challenges of teaching Vipassana, practicing Vipassana, and really sticking with Vipassana in the long run is acknowledging that we just can't reduce it down to one single heart-mind quality, even though the heart and mind totally want to do this. We really need to be able to make sure we're putting the pieces back together. And that's why Vipassana is a harder meditation practice. Another challenge with Vipassana and this is probably one of the biggest challenges with Vipassana, is that we import mysticism into the Dharma. We import mysticism into the Dharma. Now, this is always so confusing. It's difficult to talk about. There's a lot of debate around it. People are very sensitive about this issue, but I'm going to say it, and I, I, I say it in, all my, in a lot of my Dharma talks, but whenever I say it, I always feel like I have to qualify it because it's a very sensitive subject in the Dharma. So at the time of the Buddha, right, at the time of the Buddha, there were an incalculable, so to speak, number of mystical traditions. Now, when I say mysticism, mysticism is a spiritual practice where the goal is oneness or unity with God or all that is. We call it cosmic consciousness or Christ consciousness or non-dual experience, unification consciousness, oneness. Mysticism in all its many forms across all kinds of different cultures is a spiritual practice that brings a sense of unity where your identity is fused with what you would say is all that is, right? There is a unity experience of consciousness. That is my that's the mystical experience. It exists all throughout Buddhism, but in a very particular form. So I'm, I wanted to just back up and give that definition. So mysticism was around at the time of the Buddha. Prior to the Buddha and for hundreds and hundreds of years, non-dual teachings and non-dual uh, mysticism was alive and well. This is something that was already going on at the time of the Buddha. The Buddha had a different take in the ancient teachings on non-duality. In the ancient teachings of the Dharma, mysticism was considered a state of consciousness. It was something that you cultivate along the way to gain insight and healing. But according to our ancient teachings, it was not the end goal. 
the end goal of ancient Buddhism is not oneness, right? It's not just falling back into awareness and experiencing that bliss and love and interconnectedness. That's a part of the teaching. But from a traditional perspective, that's not the end goal. That's the goal of mysticism, which was very different than what the Buddha was teaching at the time. Now, the reason this is a difficult subject for, for us as, as Westerners is twofold. As Buddhism spread, mysticism was infused back into Buddhism. So most Buddhism that we see today has a very strong non-dual component, a very strong mystical component. You can go to any Dharma hall, <laughs> I probably most Dharma halls in the West, and you will hear quotes by Rumi and Hafiz and all of the great mystics. So mysticism is mixed up in the Dharma from way back, whether it's in Japan or China or Tibet, mysticism is in there, mixed up in the Dharma. But in the traditional Eightfold Path model, once you have the mystical states, the Buddha talks about something beyond the mystical, beyond the one, beyond the non-dual. And so I really wanted to highlight that because if you look at the Eightfold Path and you look at Vipassana, oftentimes non-dual teachings will say things like, fall back into awareness. You are the witnessing self. You are awareness itself. And the world arises out of awareness. That's a mystical experience. If you look at the aggregates in the Dharma, the Buddha says the last aggregate is awareness. And we have to, in our Vipassana practice, let go of awareness itself. When I was down, and I know that may not be completely clear. I'll, I'll try and clear this up as we go. When I was down studying with Ruth Dennison, one of the things she said more than anything, and if you know Ruth at all, she says a lot in a short period of time. <laughs> Ruth said more than anything in my time with her, Gregory, you are not awareness. It's a big mistake to think you're awareness. You are not the witnessing. She would say there's something behind that. Don't get attached to the witnessing self. Roberts told me this before too. Don't get attached to the witnessing self. So there are many traditions where the end goal for certain traditions, the enlightenment is identifying with awareness itself, identifying with the one or the non-dual or however you want to describe it. This unification becomes an identity. So that's mysticism. In the traditional Eightfold Path model, once you experience that, then you look behind it and you let go of the non-dual as well. And there's something else. And that's the big distinction between Vipassana and mystical types of meditation. Now, again, I say this not to say that the one is right and one is wrong, but to say that they are defined differently, both historically and practically. That part of the reason we struggle to get deeper into Vipassana is that when we start having the mystical oneness experiences, we grasp and cling to them. And we create a new identity around them because they're so pleasurable. I mean, it's so nice to feel unified without a sense of self and to feel the unbounded sense of joy and compassion. That stuff is so amazing to have in meditation or on retreat or whenever you experience it. But then we tend to cling and to crave and to identify. So we have to be careful about how we use mysticism in Vipassana. And over the next few weeks, I will address this again because it is complicated. 
um, depending on your level of practice and if you've had non-dual experiences or not and oneness experiences. And most people will have them eventually. But I'll, I'll clarify it as we go. But I just wanted you to know for now that one of our biases to Vipassana is that we tend to overattach ourselves to the mystical and that we think the goal of Vipassana is to create a new identity in awareness or in oneness. When in fact, the goal of Vipassana is to let go of awareness as well and to let go of oneness and to not have any of those identities at all. It's complex, but that's the basics. Um, I'd be happy to clarify if people have questions. One last one. You guys have heard me talk about this before. When we come to the Dharma, when we come to the Eightfold Path model, most of us have at least read about or experienced all kinds of different spiritual practices. Many of us have done yoga, tai chi. Uh, some of us have experimented with psychedelics, um, prayer. I mean, we've done all trance dance. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways to have meditative and transcendental and mystical experiences. And one of the challenges of understanding Vipassana is that when we come to Vipassana, we immediately look for the parts of it that we recognize, the parts of it that we're familiar from our other spiritual experiences. And we see those right off the bat, right? We see those and we kind of go for them and we practice them and we fine tune them. Maybe we master them a bit and we tend to overlook the parts that we're unfamiliar with, the parts that don't arise into full view, the parts that seem, like I said earlier, um, possibly averse to our upbringing or things that challenge us. So we tend to look at the parts that we're familiar with or the parts that are similar to what we already know and we focus on those and we sort of create a blind spot for ourselves. We look for the similarity and we presume that the similarity is truthful enough and we don't look at the differences. My big invitation to you over the next few weeks as we talk about Vipassana itself, insight meditation as we see it in the Pali Canon, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, is to look for parts that are unfamiliar, things that you haven't heard described about the practice, because that is where the major growth can occur. That's where a growth edge is where you can, as they say, look over and push yourself into a new experience that you might not be familiar with. The similarity problem, as I like to call it for myself, is that it closes our mind down, right? It allows us or doesn't allow us um, to awake to new experiences. If we're only looking for what we're familiar with, there's a whole portion of Vipassana practice that's going to be left by the side of the road, for lack of a better word. The main thing I want to encourage you to take home from from this talk in particular, is be awake and aware to your own spiritual orientation. Be awake and aware to your spiritual upbringing, the things that uh, didn't work for you, the things you felt harmed you or confused you. When you approach the Dharma, keep in mind where you've been spiritually, where your hangups are, so to speak, in spiritual practice because they will repeat themselves as you move into Vipassana and you want to be aware of them enough so that healing can take place and that you won't miss out on some of the more interesting and unique aspects of the practice. 
And remember that this is a journey. This is not about knowing the answer. This is about wondering what the answer is, right? Wondering about open-heartedness, wondering about compassion and wisdom, and being comfortable with beginner's mind, not knowing where the path is taking you, right? And jumping in and being curious and creative and playful even with your practice. And understanding that one of the main differences between Vipassana and some other basic mindfulness practices is Vipassana is a very broad-reaching journey. It impacts every aspect of our being, our speech, our livelihood, our relationships, our heart, our mind, our body, our breath. It is a huge, dynamic, holistic experience. And the more you can excite yourself, so to speak, and be curious about the depth and uniqueness of the practice, the more you'll get out of it in the long run. Because it is such an amazing and fun and difficult and challenging journey. So opening our hearts and minds as we move into it is so helpful. And we all have bias, right? We all bring bias to our experiences. It's going to go against the stream. It's going to go against the stream. So that was just some of the things that had crossed my mind in creating an introduction here to really understanding uh, some of the things that hang us up with Vipassana practice. Well, it is an amazing spring day. I am delighted that you would come and spend time with me, allow me to share all of this stuff on Vipassana. Um, yes, okay, let's do some meta. Let's always, I don't want to go without doing some loving kindness. Let's plop for a few minutes. Take a long, slow, deep breath in. In through the nose and out through the mouth. Relaxing the body on the exhale. Relaxing the body on the exhale. Really falling back into full body awareness. Taking in all parts of the body, the arms and the legs face and the head, all parts of the body in awareness, really feeling the feelings, the Vedana, those impermanent sensations arising and passing away. Notice how you're feeling now in this moment. with awareness, see if you can bring the heart and mind into a state of rest and ease, peace and serenity. And in the space of presence, in the space of contentment, let us wish well for all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. 
May all beings know true love and true joy in this lifetime. May all beings feel safe and secure, loved and cared for, heard and appreciated. May all beings be safe. May all beings be well. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings know peace and ease, well-being and contentment. May all beings know peace and joy in this lifetime. Thank you for sharing your evening with me, my friends. Be well, be safe. I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.